guns and money. Welcome back to Conduct Detrimental. I'm your co-host, Daniel Wallach, along with my good friend, uh, Dan Lust. Uh, We're going to take a break from the um, episodes featuring guests because we have uh, a lot of topics to cover today. It's been a busy week in sports law, and we just came off of a really good run where we had Darren Ravel, Darren Heitner, Evan Drellick and Pat Leonard. We had sort of the Mount Rushmore of of sports law, uh, you know, super guests the last few weeks. So this episode, uh, it'll be more of a monologue and a discussion between Dan and I with input and crowdsourcing from our followers on Twitter. So, Dan, what do we have this week and how are you? I'm great, Dan. I thought you were going to forget to ask me how I was. I'm doing fantastic. And I see uh, you getting your nice tan in South Carolina. Um, so Dan, uh, we, we have a saying, uh, in our little group chat, our conduct detrimental group chat, shake and bake. Uh, and this is going to be a very much shake and bake episode because we have no more, uh, guests for this episode. It's just going to be you and I. So I'm happy to have a, a nice throwback with you. Yeah, it'll be hopefully, I, th- I think given the number, the large number of topics that we're going to endeavor to cover this week, it will be more like fast break rather than shake and bake. Let's see if we can get it all done uh in less than three hours this time <laughs> but i think some of the topics as our audience will soon see are are pretty weighty and of course you can anticipate and predict what some of those uh you know major topics are going to consist of so dan uh let's tee it up okay number one um this was recommended to us by dan every single person on on twitter uh, and instagram this is the washington redskins and then uh, as those will recall we hit the washington redskins the trademark element only uh and that was early in the week with uh, our guest uh, friend of the show darren heitner now the the next shoe to drop um we, we kind of knew it at the time that there was a looming washington post story wild wild accusations from uh bribing officials to uh we'll say wild um wild parties um, and then when the smoke cleared, it was still a, a bombshell allegation. Um, it's a kind of, um, you know, sexual harassment running rampant through the Washington Redskins organization. Um, so I, I have my thoughts on this. I've, I've been pretty vocal uh, on this story, Dan. W- what's your take really on the whole Redskins saga? Just, just on, on this, I guess, the Washington Post story and where you think it goes. Well, I, well, number one, I'm surprised that the NFL is not investigating this. I mean, if we look at all the players who are merely accused of, of, of crimes, I mean, Antonio Brown was sued in a, like a, a civil sexual assault case, a civil case. The NFL took on that investigation. They didn't leave it um, you know, to, to the uh, Oakland Raiders or the Pittsburgh Steelers or the New England Patriots to conduct an internal investigation. I think uh, this is a cop-out because as long as the NFL is not investigating, then no action can be potentially taken against any member of the Redskins up through and including Dan Snyder. This investigation internally by the team will probably take, if it's, a, if it's going to be a meaningful investigation, one would have to think it's going to take a few months. And I wonder, given the fact that uh, Beth Wilkinson is being hired by the Redskins to deliver this, this report, how independent and how neutral will she really be? And ultimately, is this going to be a big whitewash? What are, what are some of your thoughts on this? I mean, I'm hostile to the notion of the NFL having a hands-off approach from the beginning. They should get involved now. Well, you know, I think the Redskins have made such brilliant decisions over the past few years that, that we should really defer to their judgment, Dan. That's 
That's no, I am absolutely kidding. There is there is no reason of all teams the Washington Redskins, who you know, I, and again, I don't I don't love to take these hard opinions on this, but I think with it's just it's just an absolute no brainer that the NFL should have put their fingerprints on this. So you know, to kind of to kind of backtrack a little bit, the Washington Post. You know, the story is that 15 um, cheerleaders, different female employees within the organization are, are talking about a culture that was really toxic uh, over years. And it wasn't just one guy. And it just, you know, seemingly went throughout the organization. Um, you know, important to note uh, that really Dan Snyder is not alleged to have been directly involved in this. Whether or not he was aware is a different question. Um, but, Dan, as you and I know in the history of, of sports, just recent history, Donald Sterling, as, as bad as he was for the NBA, um, he, he was not legally forced to sell his team. He agreed to sell. He agreed to drop his legal claims where the NBA was going to challenge that. And Jerry Richardson, another, you know, another guy with his allegations who was directly involved, who also was not forced, he agreed to sell. And then um, they, they walked away with a fair amount of cash there, didn't they? Yeah, but it wasn't out of the – they didn't do it just to you know, be easy about it. There was pressure being applied within the NFL to force uh, Richardson to sell. We'll never, we'll never know the true story, but I would imagine uh, that the commissioner and several other influential owners made their feelings known. And then if we go back to, to Donald Sterling for, for a moment, there was nothing voluntary about that. That ended up as a result – or the, the, the sale was a forced sale as a result of, ha- of, of, of his wife oh god I'm, this is my first foray into sports law back in 2014 the details are a little hazy but i recall uh, i think it was shelly sterling uh brought a probate proceeding to have uh donald sterling declared incompetent and as a result of this probate proceeding the team was sold he he resisted the sale so the league or the nba wasn't able to utilize their constitution and bylaws to force sterling to sell the team but his wife's use of the court system uh, accomplished the same objective. And there's nothing voluntary. Anytime an owner sells a franchise, I, th- I think there's a lot of backroom influence. And I-, I think in the cases of Richardson and um, and Sterling, there's a little bit more to the story. Now, when it comes to Dan Snyder, the ultimate question is going to be, was he aware of these allegations? Was he aware of these incidents being reported to, to HR? What kind of corrective action was taken? What level of investigation was undertaken? In the in the end, NFL's constitution and bylaws, the commissioner wields tremendous power to discipline owners for conduct detrimental not only to the game. Of you said it. You said the name of the podcast, Dan. Yes, yes, yes. You did. You this just said it. Marks, uh, you know, uh, you know, the bird's going to drop and I'll win some money. But I, th- I think there's also language in the constitution that's, that tethers conduct detrimental. There, I said it again, with conduct detrimental to the employees of a team. I forget which specific constitution or bylaw provision it is, but I think it's somewhere in Article 8 that if uh, if Roger Goodell believes that ownership committed some you know conduct detrimental to the welfare of team employees I mean this is this sounds like the situation that could you know fit that to a T so I think for Dan Snyder it's going to be a long road but I would I would focus on what he knew and what kind of corrective action or investigation did he undertake when he found out about it because if he did nothing or next to nothing then it's going to be un 
unpalatable, if that's the word. It's not It's not going to be palatable for him to remain as the owner of the Washington NFL team. It's curtains for him. I mean, if there were, so, if there were massive complaints and he took no right. corrective action or the team took no corrective action, then that's going to be a problem for everybody. So, so two, th- two things. I mean, when, when I'm saying you can't legally force someone to sell, I mean, I'll, I'll stand by that to some extent, Dan. I mean, in the, the question that gets dropped in my replies, and I'm sure yours, can the NFL force, force Dan Snyder to sell? Of course yes. they can. It's in the bylaws. Part of that, Good, Goodell could make that, or I think it's you know one of the bylaws. I, I know I read it of, um, when the, the news first broke, but 24 teams, three-fourths of the league can, can also ascend to that. The problem is, Dan, it's at least for the NFL mechanism, it's unprecedented. You know, Jerry Richardson sold with this backroom pressure, but the NFL didn't put a gun to his head and sell. And even, even in, in the NBA, you know, Donald Sterling sold his team. Silver banned him for life from the NBA, but Adam Silver didn't put a gun to his head and say sell the team. Somebody else outside of the NBA mechanism and the third one that got brought up to me, somebody said, well, isn't it true that Major League Baseball forced Marge Schott to sell the Cincinnati Reds after she made some really, uh, really kind of gross comments? The answer to that was also no. They might have had the authority, but before they actually show her that authority, she went ahead and sold the team. There was, we've never really. It was banned from the game for a little while. She, she was banned, banned from day-to-day operations, but same thing as Sterling. There was no gun to her head that said, you have to sign on this line and I'm requiring you to sell it. So when I, when I point this up in Snyder's context, Snyder, and Dan, and you you brought it up, this is not a, this is not Marge Schott. Who who was probably closer to Jerry Richardson in terms of what they said or the inappropriate things, and then it's it's you know in a version when you when you were just saying it, Dan, it made me think of Joe Paterno, that situation you know not not so long ago with uh, Penn State. That's an apt yeah. comparison. I mean, yeah, different level different level of offense here, but you're talking about inaction and 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 uh, you know passing the buck or not doing anything. I mean, Joe Paterno oversaw a systemic pattern of of sexual abuse abuse involving minors, and they removed a statue. They fired him and the repercussions around the Penn State program continue to, the, to this day. Well, right. what they, we have here potentially is inaction towards systemic sexual harassment of team employees and reporters covering the team. Obviously, when you have minors involved, it's a, it's a, it's another level of, of evil, but we're talking about largely institutional inaction to, to, to sexual crimes or sexual harassment against uh, against others. And that's intolerable. So I, I'm going to agree. And I think just, just one final Final point as we as we make our way to our next topic. I think you know with 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 Paterno, obviously he's a coach. Snyder's the owner. There's there's another shoe that we still have to see. And, and Dan, I, I would be remiss. I think this is just my gut as as someone that's watched the story kind of unfold. The story kind of lingered on Twitter, social media for four days. We kind of had rumblings on Reddit that there was a bombshell story. But you know this story lingered for four days. And in in media, in investigative reporting, you don't let a story linger for four days because you, you're worried that someone's going to scoop you. When this story came out, uh, I believe it was on Thursday, we we had a lot of courageous women that put their names on this report. And you, you can, as an investigative journalist, as a as a news entity, you can say with confidence these pe- people are putting their names to this report. We can we have confidence in moving forward to these allegations. Now, there's a number of women. You know, we can't we can't fault them. That's just what their their comfort level aren't putting their names to certain allegations. So just using common sense here. If a story was floated out for four days and that Washington Post wasn't worried about someone scooping them, they were clearly trying to do some additional due diligence. We know that when Washington Post brought the story to the Washington Redskins, that certain individuals within the organization got fired. They lost their jobs immediately. It's the radio guy, and I think that there's one other person with the team. My, my gut here, Dan, is just, just the way we've seen, be it Jeffrey Epstein or any number of these situ- situations, 
once certain people come forward, it's a comfort level that takes time, but more women will come forward. More people that are that are victims will come forward. And I think with that, a more of a reliability for these sources to start reporting things. So I, I think the other shoe is, is still to drop. Minority owners are already, uh, you know, jumping well, ship. Um, I, I think there's still something else here that we haven't heard. And it's just my, my gut. Well, yeah, we have NDAs. And I'd like to stay with this topic for at least a few more minutes because there are a couple of, uh, you know, issues that I think are worth covering. You know, Dan, you know, we make the rules here. We're okay. the Dan's. We can make it up as we go. All right. Putting aside the issue of whether this investigation is truly independent, neutral, or unbiased, I think we could all agree that if women aren't released from their NDAs or allowed to speak, at least to Beth Wilkinson, there's going to be a problem as far as, you know, public acceptance and credibility surrounding this report. And the problem with ex-employees and former employees is that they're not under any obligation to hold anything back. You're going to get the unvarnished truth and right. maybe people have an axe to grind. So you have to weigh credibility both ways. But and these are outsiders, Dan. These aren't these aren't like GMs. These are just cheerleaders who, if they don't work for the team anymore, they're free agents. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, and, and another, yeah, another issue about this report, I'm tired of, of media, media reports about, the, oh, there's going to be this independent investigation. <laughs> I think at a bare minimum, we've attacked it at a bare minimum, show us the report. The, I think this report should be disclosed to the public in the same vein that the Ted Wells report surrounding Bullygate, you know, with Jonathan Martin and Deflategate and Tom right. Brady. I mean, th those those investigations were commissioned by the National Football League, by the way. Not, not a team investigation, not an internal investigation. It was a league investigation. And while we uh, certainly have, a, a, many of us are, are kind of skeptical and cynical about some of the conclusions that Mr. Wells reached in his, in his report, the report at least saw the light of day. We all were privy to it either because the NFL released it or it showed up as an exhibit in a court case. I think that this kind of internal investigation, we're going to need more than just, you know, uh, a sanitized summary of what Ms. Wilkinson found. I would I would call upon the NFL to insist to the or, or mandate to the Redskins that this report be publicly disseminated because otherwise how do you accept the conclusions without knowing I mean obviously you're going to have to redact names and protect witnesses privacy but the sort of the soundness of the investigation and whether it was conducted in good faith the public will be more likely to you know accept some of the premises if they have access to the report and can judge for themselves so I, I want to um you know I, I think it's important snyder is a guy kind of a recluse he doesn't he doesn't really make public comments um so the comment here, which which uh, I know I had a lot of fun with on, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm just reading the third paragraph of Dan Snyder's statement. Beth Wilkinson and her firm are empowered to do a full, unbiased investigation and make any and all requisite recommendations. So it goes on and on. You know, recommendations, yeah, I, I, to, recommendations to the team and to team ownership, not for public consumption. Right. But I, I think, you know, I, I find interesting, Dan, if someone is paying my bills, I, I don't really think I'm so unbiased. I don't really think I'm so independent. So I, um, you know, I had a lot of fun with this. Someone said I asked a leading question. But I, I asked, does, does Dan Snyder actually know what the word unbiased means? Because this is far from something that's unbiased. If he's picking, handpicking the attorney, right? And and we didn't even talk about where this is going. But Dan, if you're handpicking the attorney and you say, okay, we want you, we're going to pay your firm your exorbitant hourly rates, but we want you to make an unbiased report. So Dan, this is this is the part that I felt very uncomfortable in. And, and I mean, we've, we've alluded to it, but the NFL statement was very clear. They're going to defer action to what the Redskins handpick lawyer decides to do. That is just, again, I, we joked about it at the top, Dan, but to, to defer to the Redskins who have just, 
Well, Dan, actually, I take it. The Redskins have been brilliant. They've been a, a model of class of organization. They've done nothing wrong. They're running just, yeah. again, absolutely kidding. You cannot defer to the Redskins, and especially in this cloud of controversy that they're currently in. I just, I think it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. And, you know, like with a lot of these investigations and reports, even with the Fo- with Fox News, you know, a lot of similar circumstances, you have convenient fall guys, right? You have, you have the, you know, the, 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 the executives who were accused of it. And you can, you know, you can credibly point to all these individuals as isolated instances and, and, and say that they're the ones responsible for it and absolve the team of creating a, a culture of uh, or a toxic culture that uh, allowed and, and 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 just encouraged this kind of behavior so you know one of the one of the real dangers of, of a truly you know not neutral investigation is that you kowtow or or uh, you you deliver an opinion that absolves the person paying your bills from the problem or, or from accountability. And you su- certainly you suggest corrective steps and say these are the steps that the organization needs to take going forward. But you, you're very careful to avoid laying blame on the principal owner. And of course, Beth Wilkinson is in the business of practicing law. That's her business. If she uh, essentially cancels Dan Snyder, she probably will not be hired by too many corporations to conduct an internal investigation. I can probably I'm, look see, elsewhere. No one, no one can see me on video, but like that is... That is the crystal clear point here. If Beth Wilkinson recommends that Snyder should be fired, she's never going to get hired for this job again. That makes absolutely no sense. So well, he can't I'm, get fired. He can't get fired. But certainly, well, her she, recommendations she makes could cause the NFL to take action, right. and the NFL it makes no sense. NFL, it makes it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. So, we, Dan, you and I can talk about this all day, but I, I want to make sure we we hit we leave enough time for for the docket. So. Number two. So today being Sunday, we, we had a, a movement across the, the NFL. This was a number of players as high as uh, Pat Mahomes, Drew Brees, Jarvis Landry. Anyone you could think of is is posting you know, that the NFL that they want to play. That's their new hashtag. We want to play. And it's very reminiscent of Major League Baseball's when and where movement when they really were trying to show their collective organization. So NFL players are saying, we want to play. We just want it to be safe. And now, you know, all of a sudden, again, we, you know, I, I, there was a CBA that was just negotiated, number one. But number two, you have this collective action. Players do have some leverage. I mean, if they say they're, that they're gonna, not going to play, I mean, the owners are going to have to listen to some extent. So, Dan, what's your, your take on this NFL safety movement? And before, I guess, we get into it, just a quick shout-out to Tina Butera over on Twitter and Oliveris Legal on Instagram for recommending this topic. Yeah, I mean, this definitely highlights the failures of the National Football League Players Association in moving forward with with a CBA vote in March during the beginning of uh, of the pandemic and, and all and all the slowdowns and, and, you know, sort of government mandated shutdowns. The Players Association negotiated this CBA in the midst of a pandemic without taking, without addressing a number of these issues that were certainly foreseeable back in March, but they were in such a rush, or at least the executive leadership of the NFLPA appeared to be in such a rush to ram this through to a uh, to a membership vote that there were a boatload of issues surrounding COVID-19, return to play, testing protocols, None of that was addressed in this new CBA that was only voted upon just a couple of months ago when we already knew that COVID-19 could play uh, and uh, could negatively impact the playing of the 2020 regular season. So I think the the NFLPA is certainly trying to use its membership to create, you know, all this public 
public relations and, and public outcry over the owner's failures when I think the principal failure does lay at the feet of the union leadership for not addressing these issues when they had the leverage. They have no leverage now other than to withhold their services. And for a player in the National Football League whose average career length is less than you know eight years, it's not really a credible claim or a credible threat to claim that you're going to withhold your services for many of these players that could be more than 20% of their of their career uh, career spans so i think the union lost they had a they had a perfect opportunity to try to you know use their leverage to bargain for these things and gain a lot of these givebacks and a lot of these concessions. And now they've lost the leverage. They've approved a CBA that's going to last for 11 more years. So I, I, I lay I lay the blame at the feet of DeMaury Smith, you know, as I've been for the last few months. This is a major failure on the PA's part. So, you know, I, I, I can't really disagree, Dan. I mean, the only pushback I'll give you is that they got this in under the wire of the pandemic. We knew what COVID-19 was when this deal was ratified. So, you know, I think they wanted to get it in under the wire. Um, I know the MLS, at the same time the NFL was finishing their CBA, they had agreed in principle on the Major League Soccer CBA. They just Mm. hadn't ratified it. And then they continued negotiating for about two and a half months. So we might not have an NFL season if they didn't agree to it. But I I understand hindsight being 2020, I think they did lose the leverage. Now, in terms of what what's safe and what's not safe? I mean, one thing, Dan, it's to, to lose your money to set of the season. But for guys like, you know, backup running backs or a uh, third string wide receiver or the punt returner, if you don't play, it's not just that you could lose your salary. You could lose your spot in the NFL and then, you know, just never, never play again. You've worked your whole life to get to this point in the NFL. And all of a sudden, if you don't play, you don't feel safe to play, you might not ever get get that spot again. And then there's always a guy, Dan, ready to take your take your spot. So I, I what I find interesting in, in really all of this, and I know um, our Michael McCann, uh, you know, who was formerly at SI, now at Sportico, had a really good tweet. He said, you know, from a business standpoint, it made sense to schedule these preseason games ahead of time. But while the NFL safety protocol is still in flux, maybe you shouldn't be scheduling games and, and shortening that time frame. So, so players are supposed to report to, you know, camp the next you know, a couple days. The first preseason game is on August 20th, and we still really haven't figured it out. So it's almost like as if baseball had a, you know, had opening day and they were still working on what the players should be paid. It's it's not really a tenable situation. And I think, you know, while all these other sports, and there's one, we're going to get into this on the WNBA landscape, but all the other sports have really figured out what an opt-out is going to look like. So if you're, um, you know, in most sports, if you're declared someone that's high risk, you can get a paid opt-out. It's going to be a prorated based on how many games there are. And then if you were, you know, not high risk, someone like David Price in Major League Baseball, you could just forego your salary and you don't have to play. While all the other sports seem to have figured it out, kind of mysteriously, suspiciously underneath the radar. The NFL has no opt-out policy at this point. I've heard crazy things, Dan. If you don't report, maybe you could get taxed as if you were a player that's holding out. I, I think that's part of it. They're not allowing players at, the, at this stage, a month before the season, you know, weeks before or days before you're supposed to go back to camp, any mechanism to not play and not get fined. So I think that's all all kind of interwoven and why the players are so upset. Yeah, I mean, that's what unions are for. And unfortunately, this union dropped the ball, you know, many months ago. And I think the problem with the public feeling sympathetic towards the players is that most of us, not me, not you, care more about the logo on the front of the uniform than the name on the back of the uniform. And people just want to see the games. And it's not their necks on the line. It's not It's not the fans who are going to be on the field, uh, surrounded by 21 other players in close proximity, blocking, sweating, bleeding. This is a really dangerous situation to be putting um, you know, professional athletes in such close proximity to one another. When 
when the national situation, at least in many of the, the key states, seems to be worsening instead of improving. So I don't know that we're going to have an NFL season. I don't know that we should have an NFL season. You know, just I can tell you from my own personal situation, I'm now about to begin month three in Oconee County, South Carolina, living on a you big, love it, Dan. You living love on living a big South rural Carolina. spread because Honestly, uh, you, you know, it, it's 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 a really high risk situation, no matter your age, whether you're over the age of 50 like I am or you're a professional athlete who's in, you know, tip top shape. Uh, these are very painful. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these are these are really unprecedented times and I think strong union leadership could have uh you know created some protections that would have been more easy to negotiate when there was a, a little bit more leverage on the player side with the, with the contract about to expire in 2021 and today you're talking about owners that could just as easily walk away from the season and not have their styles of living altered one bit versus players who face the prospect of having one more year tick away on their careers. And there's very little question as to where the leverage you know, lies. And, uh, and sadly, the sympathies should lie with the players. And unfortunately, given the selfishness of our fan bases, you know, all of us, we want to see the games play. I'm not sure that there's this, you know, huge public outcry to protect the players. It's really up to the union to demonstrate strong leadership here. And they dropped the ball in March and are now using their players' social media influence to try to, you know, balance the scales. And I, I don't know if that's going to make that much of a, an impact. So I guess two things come to mind. And I'm, I'm you know, I want to stay in football, but it, I had a conversation. Uh, I, was, I was with a friend today and I was just, we were just talking about some of these issues and he said well if someone like lebron james doesn't play no one's going to watch the lakers right and i'm like no everyone's going to still watch the lakers that's not how sports works there's there's a value to the lakers there's a value to the 49ers the people will still watch the game so you know dan my my thought process during covid i didn't think any of these leagues were going to play but we're here my thought now just kind of watching this landscape and again the topic at least for this is player safety my my gut at this point is we're going to have a keanu reeves situation we're going to have a slew of replacement players you know infiltrate starting lineups start you know starting rotations across all of sports you know all of the team sports that have returned be at the MLS two teams dropped out two teams fully dropped out mm -hmm. and in the major league the w women's pro soccer a team dropped out so I'm not you know golf PGA a golfer drops out no one really bats an eye you don't you don't no one's going to count the amount of golfers but for for the National Football League I, I can't really see a scenario where we have 31 teams like it's not that's that easy to do major league soccer has this crazy tournament that they could mess yeah. around the schedule so I just don't see our four major sports being so quick to drop a team out I just there's something that doesn't sit right with me could it happen Happen? Sure. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, With the Blue Jays, they're just going to move and, and play their games as the Buffalo Blue Jays, as you pointed out on Pittsburgh. Twitter. It's Pittsburgh getting very close to him. Yeah, but but I'm thinking of the bookmakers, you know, the sports betting companies that now are faced with all these like unprecedented variables and unknowable. Right. I, and they're I'm gonna very curious. To, they're going to have to set lines. They're going to have to uh, forecast and create a you know a betting line around a contest that historically they might have had a little bit more you know uh, insight into how to handicap this or how how to determine the spreads and the over unders and all the other bettable opportunities. And now this is like bizarro world. Uh, we're facing a situation where how do you how do you make assessments on how a team is going to you know on how a particular contest is going to go? So this is this is really uncharted territory for for so many of us, and I'm still skeptical that the game that that the NFL will come off. Uh, I know Major League 
League Baseball is moving forward. The NHL will come forward. But I, I just, you know, I think we're going to see one league just abandon things altogether. So that that's a nice segue to our third topic today. So friend of the show, Tarun Sharma, he's a uh, law student at Minnesota, had a great suggestion on Twitter. So I had a my, well, same friend I was talking to today. He goes, they're, they're not going to be fans, right? There's no fans going to be in football. And I go, that's actually not true. Some stadiums, some cities are, mm-hmm. are going to have no fans. But there's a team like the Baltimore Ravens who says we're planning to have one sixth, one fifth capacity. So that's we, we're going to have fans this year, even if you don't agree with it. This is going to be up to city officials to make the determination. So you're going to have some states that aren't going to want any fans, and then we'll see what Florida does. But we we know how Florida Florida is. They they want to have they want to put people in the streets. So Dan, no, I, I think they not they one person one person wants to put people in the streets, people in the stands, and open up all businesses. One person. It's his first name. Governor. It's his first name. Ron? Yes, Ron. His first name is Ron. Yes. So, so Dan, oh. I'm gonna, I, I want to I, I want to make sure we give Tarun his, his credit. This question of PSL license, PSLC licenses. I mean, I think it's a great question. You bought this PSL, and I know they had a giant stadium. There was a whole controversy. You paid so much money for this. Now, what what happens to these people that paid for these seats? These are their seats. What happens to them if there are no there's, there's no games? There's no there's no fans at the Meadowlands or the Giant Stadium. What happens? Well, there are two levels of, of license here. There's the PSL agreement. You pay a one time fee for personal seat license, which gives you a license to have another license, which is the right to buy tickets. So if you've shelled out money for your 2020 game tickets and there's no uh, there are no fans permitted to attend the games, the, the clubs are going to refund those monies. What they won't give back, however, are the PSL revenues and all the fees that in the aggregate, or, you know, approached a half a billion dollars for the Las Vegas Raiders. The stadium was built on the backs of fans paying Paying PSL fees. And there's some wiggle room, some language in the PSL agreements that I know when the Giants had their PSL agreement and the Jets had their PSL agreement, I know the Giants, when they opened up the new stadium in 2011-2012, one of the provisions in the personal seat license agreement was that if the, the first game wasn't played by the 2012 season, fans could ask for their PSL monies back. All right? That, in this pandemic with the Las Vegas Raiders entering a new stadium, if every fan if there was a provision like that and every fan wanted their money back, uh, Mark Davis would have to sell the team. But the reality is that the Raiders PSL agreement doesn't have uh, onerous language like that or, or language quite like the Giants agreement. And let's face it, fans aren't going to be uh, you know seeking refunds in the context of the Raiders. Those, those, PSL, those PSL rights have enhanced in value. Game tickets on the secondary market have risen up to like Four to six hundred dollars. Those are hot commodities, and right now I, I I can't envision any set of circumstances where there's going to be a long line of fans wanting to rescind their PSL their, their PSL agreements. It's impractical in the context of the Los Angeles Ra- Las Vegas Raiders. But I've read the Raiders PSL agreements, and there is some argument that could be made that uh, a refund would be required if the game or a season was not played. It is not a particularly strong argument, but it's certainly greater than zero. But in the end, this will be an academic argument, Daniel, because nobody, uh, or at least there won't be large swath of fans that are looking to give up their rights to buy tickets to the Raiders games. They're the hottest thing going. But, Did but you say the Raiders are the hottest thing going? 
in Las Vegas. Uh, they've okay, raised the Raiders they, are not very good, Dan. I think we should point that out. The Raiders are not. Derek Carr is not very good. Last I checked. No, no but from a business perspective, the money they've generated uh, have just been through the roof. But it does raise the question of, of whether PSLs are you know are are, are, are just sort of right you know taking fans for a ride. These are million. These are, these owners by and large are billionaires, and they're not contributing any monies of their own to the financing of stadiums. They're doing it on the back of tax-free bonds, revenue bonds, and then and then PSAs funded by the ticket holders. The owners are, are putting in very little of their own money. And let's face it, these PSAs are more in the nature of, you know, a, it's not just a consumable good, the right to go to a game, but you can buy, you can sell these, resell these, maybe sell them for a profit. And it does raise the interesting question as to whether we should be looking at these things as something other than a contract, that maybe it's a security, maybe it's an investment contract, maybe they should be governed by the federal securities laws. And it does really raise an ethical question as well as to as to whether whether owners, team owners, should be financing stadiums on the back of the of the public like this. Now, I have um, it's it's related to PSLs, but I think it's more because not all not all thirty two teams have PSL license. So, but every third every one of the thirty two teams has some type of season ticket option. So, what, what I'm curious, Dan, you know, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because you're you're deep in the weeds of the of the PSL business. No, just if, since today, since today. You know, Dan, I'm, I'm, don't be modest. You're in there. My question, Dan, if I'm a season ticket holder of the Baltimore Ravens who want to have about one-sixth capacity and more than one-sixth of their tickets, we'll say one-third, I'm just making up a number here, are season ticket holders, how, how are they going to prioritize which of those one-thirds are going to get the one-sixth capacity? I'm not, I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm, I'm a little curious if, if there's going to be some type of gamesmanship in the system as to how someone would get tickets ahead of time. I think we're not seeing the end of these uh, these ticket lawsuits, Dan. I, I think there's going there's going to be an issue here for those fans that that want to attend, and uh, maybe some gamesmanship as to you know if you're a valued season ticket holder, you've been in on the inside. I'm not sure they can do it if they do a lottery like the Super Bowl. You know, what what are your thoughts there? Well, I, I I think they should give any any fan that wants to attend a game with thousands of other people in one of those states, they should give somebody uh, some kind of exam to check their sanity. Uh, so any, anyone, anyone that wants my seat can have my seat. Uh, I'm not sure that I did be, not. I thought yeah. you were going to say an exam, like a like a body scan, like a temperature check. No, like a, a head check. I got you, but yeah, not yeah. not a thermometer check. You want to you want to get inside. Yeah, I I don't see that much litigation. Listen, there'll always be lawyers, and when there's class action potential, and this is where the legal disputes will come into play. One person. Or two people, they're not going to bring a, a lawsuit where they have to hire a lawyer over an issue like this. But if there's a large class of ticket holders that are aggrieved, that's where you generally see the class action lawsuits. And I know in the case of the PSLs, I remember a few years ago, the St. Louis Rams moved to law, relocated to Los Angeles, and the Rams were sued by their by, by their season ticket holders in St. Louis that had paid significant monies for personal seat licenses, and then these licenses became valueless and worthless when the Rams moved to Los Angeles and those fans banded together and filed a class action lawsuit and ultimately that was resolved with the Rams refunding I, I think this is correct refunding somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% of the PSL fee uh, PSL uh, fees so where you tend to see litigation around PSLs or 
I would expect to see litigation around PSLs is where teams move or relocate and basically leave their fans holding the bag, buying a license to something that that no longer exists. So the Raiders aren't going to be the test case. The Giants aren't going to be the test case. I'm not sure that there are any PSL legal issues here unless there's language in these agreements that give the fans the right to demand refunds if a season isn't played or if a particular number of games are not played. So I guess you got to look across the spectrum at all 17 or 18, you know, model PSL agreements that those teams have with their fans to kind of get an answer to whether there's any viable legal theory. Joe, I think the, um, I think the PSL stuff, we got to watch. We're going to see if there's actually games, how many games, if two preseason games are canceled, which I think we can't really rule out at this point or, or any games, if there's any type of work stoppage. So we'll put a pin in that. Well, Dan and I will obviously monitor that. The next one we wanted to get to this one, Got a lot of attention early in the week. Jack Petridis over on Twitter as as a, our mutual friend, also Dan, Johnny Carver, also recommended this one. This is, a, uh, I believe, maybe at least my first WNBA legal issue that I've talked about with you on the show. I was on radio, sports radio in Waco, Texas, Baylor Station, and they were really interested in this. So this is um, Elena Deladon. She's the reigning MVP of the WNBA. She went to Delaware. She was on the uh, the women's Olympic team. She's, you know, um, if, if people don't follow the WNBA, she's the reigning MVP and the Washington Mystics won the WNBA championship last year. So she's some some level of the vicinity of LeBron or Steph Curry uh, in that sense. And Dan, mind you, I think important to note, she's also tied for the highest paid salary cap in, in the WNBA. So she's one of their highest paid players. So why do we bring her up for those that weren't following the story? Elena Deladon, I'm going to mess it up because I've always called her Ella Deladon, which is not her name, but sounds it sounds more fun than Elena Deladon. Uh, she's, she suffers from Lyme disease and she's had it for a number of years. So the I kind of alluded to this, the WNBA's opt-out policy essentially says if your own doctor declares you as high risk, you give us that doctor's note, we'll run it through our system of, of WMBA, uh, our medical panel. And if that comes out also as high risk, guess what? You get a paid opt-out. We'll prorate it to however many games the WMBA season is. And you could sit at home and you could collect a paycheck. Short of that, of your own doctor and our doctors approving it, you could sit out, but you're not going to get a dime. Miss Della Don, you know, she went to her doctor. She's had a uh, Suffers from Lyme disease. She said she's had that for a number of years. Again, uh, our guest from episode 50, Darren Ravel, posted a nice picture. She takes about 64 pills a day. And, you know, you can, Dan, and you and I aren't doctors. I've had enough doctors drop in my replies to tell me that there is some disagreement in the medical community as to whether Lyme's disease is an actual quantifiable, diagnosable disease, or if it's just kind of pseudo pseudo medicine. There is some debate on that. Neither you or I can really talk to that. I guess Ella Della, uh, Elena Della Don's doctor says that she's high risk, she has Lyme disease, and they brought that, that doctor's note, you know, her medical conditions, they brought that to the WNBA, and they said that does not qualify as a as a high-risk condition. Therefore, uh, we are not giving you a paid opt-out. You can sit at home, but you're going to get paid $0. So, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm going to toss it to you with this. The issue of what high-risk is is so amorphous, so ambiguous, and I know, Dan, we, we were just talking about this in the NFL concept isn't that a, a fault of the leagues, of the of the players, to have not really carved out exactly what this would be ahead of time? Because that's this is their livelihood. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to the WNBA, you know, labor situation with the, any unions, but uh, I, I don't think it's good for the league to antagonize 
one of its best players and, and, and really send a message like that to, to the players across across the league. I think this, you know, looking at it economically, looking at it cynically, I think the I think the league just wants its best player to play. And in a close call, health be damned, in a close call, the league is going to err on the side of sort of steering the player to play rather than to sit out because these teams don't, these teams probably all lose money. Let's face it. Some, you know, so a few of the teams are really successful. But looking at our New York Liberty, and, and by the way, the Liberty's fortunes are going to change really soon because Sabrina Ionescu is just going to like just overhaul, revolutionize, you know, women's basketball. She's going to be the LeBron James of the WNBA, and she may turn out to be the best player. So a lot of teams are in money losing situations. The Liberty have gone through an ownership change recently. I mean, just consider the luck of James Dolan, the owner of Madison Square Garden. He sold the Liberty to a group that's now going to put the franchise in Brooklyn. He did that a couple of months before the Liberty won the draft lottery to select the best player in women's basketball. So I I think we're going to have a changing of the guard soon, but certainly you wouldn't expect the NBA or or any, any league that has harmonious relationships with its players to force a player with an illness, with a demount, with a demonstrated illness, and and sort of a history of having that illness, to force them on the court and place themselves at greater risk. We don't know enough about the virus yet to be an expert on this player not facing a quantifiably higher risk. I think it's pretty self-evident that she does. Medical so, license um, or not? You say that James Dolan um, got unlucky. Karma. Karma. Um, I'll just I'll just say that. Dan. Side note. Have you ever seen James Dolan and Dan Snyder in the same room together? Because I have not. I have not seen them in the same room together. Conspiracy theory, they're the same person. Well, um, I'll tell but- you, I, I, I've been pretty pretty uh, opinionated, but I have close ties to both organizations in a way. I have friends who work in both places, so maybe I should be careful. But you're talking about two owners that are not just unpopular because of their, their public relations. They're also unpopular because of the long track record of mismanaging their teams. The Redskins and, and, and I think Snyder and Dolan have both come around at the same time, I think in the late 1990s. Between them, they have 40 years of ownership. And Dude, uh, I don't know if they have 40 wins between them. I'm not sure if they <laughs> even got there. 40 years of ownership and with the exception of one year when the Knicks had that miraculous run to the NBA Finals in the strike-shortened year, neither team has experienced much, if any, success over a sustained period going back to the late 1990s. So you're, We did you're have Lynn Sanity, though. We did have about a week. We had a week there. I'll take that to my to my grave. Yeah, and then Lynn Sanity was... Um, got on the wrong side of Carmelo Anthony and we know how that turned out. Uh, I mean we could I, I we could just do a whole show on my uh, anger over acquiring Carmelo Anthony in the first place. You had a team, you had a team that was exciting. You had our, uh, Antonio we had uh, Stoudemire. I think well, I'm trying to think who the coach was well, it. We have Gallinari, Wilson Chandler, Gallinari, yeah. Timothy Mozgov they put in that deal. Yeah. They just they just dumped everybody and they give away picks and Carmelo Anthony, fantastic. He's the for greatest. a player for a player who is about to become a free agent Green at Jesus. the end of the season. They could have gotten him for just money. I, I I'm not sure which of the two teams has been more mismanaged, uh, you know, from a talent perspective and an on the field product. But both teams also, or both franchises, have also been saddled with probably the the worst off the field public relations nightmares 
uh, of any organization in their respective sports. So when you when you when you add up the on the field and the off the field issues, you're looking at you know sort of the the probably the the two I wouldn't say despised but maybe a, a tie for the worst owner in sports. And 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 your vote may depend on where you live. If you live in Washington, Virginia, or Maryland, you'll pick Snyder. If you live in New York or from New York, like I am. I remember the Knicks 1970 and 73 title teams. I remember Frazier, Reed, DeBusher, Bradley, Monroe. These Knicks are a long way away from that, and a lot of that falls on the ownership's incompetence, inexperience, and lack of a, of a concrete vision going back you know, decades with the limited exception of the Dave Checkett's era. So, Dan, we don't have a judge here, but I'm going to say that was non-responsive to my question as to whether or not you've seen <laughs> James Dolan and Dan Snyder in the same room. You're not answering it because you know they're the same person. Okay, moving on to, uh, I'm just messing with you. Moving on to our, our fifth topic, Dan. This one uh, I, I think is interesting. We, we talked about this a lot on a, on a 50th episode, our special episode with, with Darren Ravel. By How the way, we have to thank Darren Darren's been giving us a few retweets. Uh, like, like uh, he's just all of a sudden. Which Darren? Which Darren? We got both Darrens retweeting us. All right. Darren I mean, Heitner and Darren Ravel. Pick your Darren. But a couple of hours before we went on air tonight, Darren Ravel retweeted the Conduct Detrimental tweet teasing this week's episode. What? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes, yes. I'm sure he's going to send us an invoice very soon because his million followers will ultimately, some portion of it will filter over to our podcast. But he's become a really big booster of the show, as has Darren Heitner and all the guests that we have. I mean, we have really awesome guests. And I'm just, you know, a little a little disappointed that we couldn't keep the run going. But we just had too much to cover tonight. We don't need the, we, and we do have one more topic, but we don't need We're the guests. guests. We're the guests, we right? The we guests this week is need, you and me. I'm going to tell you, we, we don't need any guests. We have so much, I, I, the behind the scenes, Dan and I were texting. I go, let's crowdsource the topics this week. You know, Dan didn't say it, but I think maybe you were a little worried we wouldn't get, we wouldn't get some topics. We got a slew of topics. Twitter exploded. I have a, I have a law student special group me that exploded. I got Instagram exploding. The people yeah. are interested. People want to hear, they, Dan, they want to hear you get deep in the weeds. They want to hear uh, me accuse you of uh, not telling the truth about whether James Dolan uh, and uh, Dan Snyder are the same person. I think, I think we had a good thing going here. Yeah. But I never want to, I never want to record these podcasts because I never feel as if I'm ready. You know, you're, you're keeping me on a weekly schedule, but I had, you know, in the past pre Dan lust, sometimes I would go a few weeks because I wouldn't want to do an episode unless it was deeply researched and I was really confident about all the issues. I'd rather be a, an expert on a few topics than a generalist on a lot of different topics. So I didn't feel I was ready tonight yet. You know, here we are. And I think we're, we're, we're doing all right, but we're coming to our last topic of the night. And thankfully, thankfully this will not require a deep well of legal research or sports law expertise. It really does let's, come down to, to what is the topic? <laughs> let's, um, I'll give a shout out. The topic uh, it was suggested by Anthony Sednicka. He's a he's a law student over at uh, Arizona State. I've spoke to Anthony, a very bright dude. So uh, Anthony wants to talk about wants us to talk about the possible legal conflict, ethical conflict that Alex Rodriguez would have as a potential owner of the Mets. So Dan and I talk. We spoke offline, and the reason I brought up uh, Darren Ravel, we got into a little. Uh, Darren was Darren Ravel was mentioning that 
the price of certain teams could drop because of COVID, because of, you know, lack of income coming in. I don't even know if that's going to be the case. So Dan, as a, uh, you grew up in New York, you grew up in Queens. Let me, let me hear what's, what's your take on this era. Do you, do you want A-Rod to own the team? He's, he claims to be a fan of the Mets for his life. I'm not sure I buy that, but what, what do you think? Well, uh, do Mets fans really want to have another undercapitalized team owned by a group that doesn't have the financial wherewithal necessary to compete at the highest levels. New York is a big market. We're talking, you know, we're talking like the, the biggest city in the country, the probably the one of the most fervent sports fan bases in the United States. I mean, some could say Boston, I say New York. I mean, it's really debatable. Yet the New York Mets have been run like a small market team probably since going back 20 or so years since the explosion of salaries. Yeah, the Mets probably been in the upper half of teams from a you know, the, the overall salary, but uh, they haven't been conducting themselves as a major market. And they had they had recent chain, you know, re- uh, reversals of fortune with the Madoff scandal. And they're looking to cash out and to go from the Wilpons, who are undercapitalized, to another group that has sort of this splinter of different limited partners. I mean, are you kidding me? You know, I, I'm a Mets fan. I'm channeling that Donald Trump expression, where's my Roy Cohn when he gets into trouble? He wants his Roy Cohn. If I'm a Mets fan, I'm asking, where's my Steve Cohen? Where's my George Steinbrenner? I think the Mets organization, it's time once and for all to have a George Steinbrenner-like owner that will compete for the best players on free agency and, and pay Pay the big salaries where it's where it's warranted to really put action behind those words. How many times have we heard the Mets being interested in Rod A Rod as a free agent or this free agent or that free agent that were that were well beyond their means? But every year the Wilpons, you know, Fred and Jeff would 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 put the put these statements out that they were interested in these players, but we knew deep down they couldn't afford them. And the Mets have always been, at least during this past decade or so, have been run like a you know like a small market franchise. I think it's time to place the team in the hands of somebody who will who who will bring financial might, ego, and bluster and all the great attributes that you want from an owner that is passionate about winning. I mean, the moment Steve Cohen becomes the owner of this team, not only does he become the wealthiest owner in a sport that doesn't have a salary cap, but the distance between his wealth and the second richest owner in Major League Baseball, you're talking about a gap from $13 billion down to $4 billion. He could spend like there's no tomorrow and never feel it. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm not a Mets fan. I'm a San Francisco Giants fan. I support the New York teams. I have no dog in the race. You know, the, the only thing I, I want to point out, Dan, anybody that owns a professional team at this point uh, has means. They have money. There is no guarantee, even if Steve Cohn buys the team, that he's going to invest his personal fortune in the Mets, which, mind you, Dan, I, I think some Mets fans listening to this would believe that they're a cursed franchise. So I'm not sure necessarily make so much sense to pump money into the team. You know, I think owning a team has... They've won two titles, two world championships in my lifetime. Every fan base thinks their team is cursed. I'm a Rangers fan. I I thought they they were truly cursed, but they won the Stanley Cup. Every team eventually wins. But curses can happen later on. I mean, I was born in 1988. The Mets have not won in my lifetime. So for me, Dan, 
I think they're cursed. And you can't tell me otherwise because they won in 86. I have a friend, close friend, who listens to this podcast, Will Friedman, who uh, is convinced that they're cursed. So, you know, um, what, what you, you never know. You, what month in 88 were you born? Because I'm trying to ascertain whether you were alive when Mike Sosha hit that opposite Here's, here's field the problem, Dan. Here's the problem. On these HIPAA complaints, I can only give you my, my year. I can't tell you the month. I can tell you offline, but not on the podcast. I can't. I'm just kidding. My birthday was this past week, July 15th. So that, that so was the month. Right. I was of course, I should know that so you were alive happy birthday dan thank you i mean this could have been the birthday edition of the podcast yeah you won't ask me how i'm doing you just want to go straight into the podcast luckily it's all time stamped but you were but dan i mean how could you say that you know you weren't around for the glory days you were actually alive you were three or four months old when the mets and the dodgers played i remember it well that epochal seven game series in 1988 that truly ended the Mets dynasty. Yeah, no, I remember that really well. I was three months old. I remember sitting and watching. No, I don't remember any of that because, uh, you know, Dan, I think the Mets are, you could say they're cursed, but Dan, I want to, I want to pin you down on one, the legal aspect really of this A-Rod thing, which I think is fascinating. A-Rod is, is making a name for himself as a broadcaster on ESPN. He's going to be buying the, the Mets. I mean, I don't think he could be part of any game. So I, I think that's going to be an ethical obligation. He might need to take off his broadcast hat. I, I could see that happening. I, I, I don't think there's any chance that he would remain as a broadcaster if he became part of an ownership group. It wouldn't even be an ethical or legal question. He just wouldn't do it. The network wouldn't put him on there. And, and quite frankly, if a principal owner or an operating owner is spending the time in other vocations, broadcasting games, you wonder about his commitment to rectifying and, and, and bringing the franchise back to glory. He's not the right guy for this. Uh, you know, the, A-Rod, the, A-Rod, the other, the, the other, we'd be remiss, Dan, just, just quick, Jessica Mendoza, his Sunday night baseball partner, she was a Mets advisor and had to step down from, from her role in Sunday night baseball. So I, I just kind of bring it up tongue in cheek. He's 100% going to have to step down from any type of, I think, as an entirety, his broadcast role. He's, he's got to just completely throw that hat away. So he's A-Rod, a- who loves the limelight, I don't, I don't know if he's necessarily, I think it's all maybe uh, maybe a show because he doesn't have the funds to that anywhere close to what Stephen Cohen has. No, and, 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 you know, he's not getting the team. And if the Wilpons sell him the team, that's basically uh, the Wilpons giving a giant FU to the Mets fan base because after after 40 years uh, actually I wouldn't I wouldn't pin all 40 years as being a colossal failure on the Wilpons because the Doubleday Wilpon partnership was very successful throughout the 1980s and they had their moments in the 1990s I'm looking at the last 10 to 12 years or so and I think Mets fans deserve a lot more than a continuation of the same thing. And quite frankly, I repeat this mantra because I love the line. I'm a Mets, I'm not a Mets fan, I'm a Yankees fan, but Mets fans should be demanding Steve Cohen. I want my Steve Cohen. Anything else, even the, even the Harris Blitzer group would be a step down. First of all, because they're not, even though they're billionaires, they own two other teams. Uh, you, you know, they own what, the 76ers, the New Jersey Devils, now they're going to add the Mets to their collection. What kind of attention and focus can those two individuals place on three different teams at the same time? Steve Cohen's from New York. He owns no other uh, professional sports teams, and he is going to he's going to shake things up. And if you're going to talk about shake and bake, uh, if you're a Mets fan, you have to go to sleep hoping and praying that Steve Cohen gets the franchise because the, because each of those other alternatives is a step down for different reasons. Okay, the Mets don't shake and bake because they're cursed in. You and I shake and bake. I got you're going to have to rewatch Talladega Nights. We are the shake and bakers. Okay, so. 
Dan, I think uh, we're, we're pretty close to the hour mark. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts before I send us home tonight? I, I want to thank our, our loyal audience, which has been growing gradually over the last you know couple of weeks. We're doing our best to create you know a really high-end sports law podcast. I think most of the times we succeed. And I just want to thank Dan for bringing some structure, order, consistency, and regularity to this podcast. We're going like, you know, full guns of blazing. I think this is the fifth or sixth consecutive week that we've done this. So we look forward to visiting you every week, touching upon the, you know, biggest sports law stories of the week. And thankfully, thankfully, there's no shortage of content. So just uh, before we, we send this home, I had my uh, my sports law Zoom this week with New York Law School. We had over 100 registered, which was uh, fantastic. And I have a couple more coming up. But to the extent that you are a, a law student, sports business student, sports management student. I know Dan and I have a couple on our docket, but to the extent that you wanted us to, to do this over Zoom, you wanted to just do something while during this pandemic while you're not taking classes and you wanted to go over these issues, it would be our absolute pleasure. Dan and I, uh, we just do this for a lot of fun. So it's it's lovely to um, to connect people and to, uh, to kind of speak about sports law issues and bring some more uh, exposure to the field. So Dan, anything else before before we send us home? Yeah, one final question, Dan. Has, is there a law school that you haven't done a Zoom sports law lecture for? I mean, have, have you, is there a law school that you've missed? You've been all over the place. I, it's, it's amazing. I got my my uh, JD from Fordham University School of Law, but I got my LLM during the pandemic at Zoom University School of Law. So I hit all of them. I'm not, there's not a law school. No, I'm just, it, it, I'd love, listen, you, you do the symposiums. I'm trying to do the Zooms. I'd, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's a lot of fun. So Dan, from, uh, from my, my place over here in the UN, uh, in, in South Carolina, I'd like to, uh, again, we'll put this episode in the books, a new episode. If, if there's anybody uh, in the future, if you have topics that you'd like us to address, Dan uh, is over on Twitter at Wallach Legal, also on Instagram, myself, Dan Lust at Sports Law Lust on Twitter and Instagram, the show. Conduct Detrimental is at Con Detrimental. And uh, it always helps if you leave us a review uh, and you rate, uh, rate the podcast. But that being said, we will put this in the books and we will see you next week. Oh,